The summer of 1858 was particularly scorching for Londoners. On July 15th of that year, temperatures rose to nearly 35 degrees Celsius, or 95 degrees Fahrenheit, in the shade. That's hot for the UK. That wasn't as bad as last year's recorded temperature of 40.2 degrees Celsius, or just over 104 degrees for London. But in a time before air conditioning and electric fans, there wasn't much people could do but wait for the heat to pass. The intense summer was difficult enough for Londoners to contend with, but something even worse than a heat wave was making life virtually unbearable for everyone in the city. By the time the 1858 heat wave hit, the Thames was so polluted with sewage, among other things we'll get into, that Charles Dickens wrote of it, quote, through the heart of the town, a deadly sewer ebbed and flowed in the place of a fine, fresh river. The Thames was so dirty that the mere smell of it sent people into fits of vomiting, and there are even accounts of people fainting from the stench. A drought coupled with an especially hot summer, the lack of a proper sewer system, industrial waste, a booming population— and an increase in the usage of fancy new flush toilets, all came together to form a perfect storm of putrid pestilence that was so bad historians are still talking about it today. It even has its own name. It's been dubbed the Great Stink of 1858. This episode is a little gross, so get your gloves and some waterproof boots, because we're going in to uncover the history of a smell so horrid it forced a colossal overhaul of Victorian London's infrastructure. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. as a species have always had to contend with where exactly we should be putting our poo. From outhouses to chamber pots to holes dug specifically for us to do our business, there have been a myriad of creative ways we've used to tackle the problem of human waste throughout the millennia all over the world. For example, according to an article from All That's Interesting by Marco Margaritov, the wealthy inhabitants of the Indus Valley's Mohenjo-Daro, way back in 2800 BCE, used to sit on wooden seats fortified by brick. They would do their business, and their waste would move down a chute out into the street drains. The ancient Romans had toilets built over open sewers. According to the Smithsonian, in medieval England, those who lived in castles used something called a guard robe. Rooms that protruded outward from the castle walls where waste would fall, sometimes from great heights, down a chute into a cesspit. Thanks, gravity. But that was only if you lived in a castle. If you were poor and living in a city, you probably just emptied your refuse out onto the street from a bucket. Then, in 1596, Sir John Harrington, Queen Elizabeth I's godson, had an idea. 
After some trial and error, he built the first ever version of a flush toilet. According again to Magaratov, it took seven and a half gallons of water per flush, which meant it ended up being used around 20 times before anyone flushed it. These early flush toilets were particularly stinky. Almost two centuries and many flushes later, in 1775, a watchmaker named Alexander Cumming figured out that if you used a curving pipe underneath a flushing toilet, water would collect and form a seal, preventing the odor from pervading into the room, at least in part. This didn't capture all of the smell, so these improved flush toilets still stank, but less. Tweaks and advancements continued over the years, until history leads us to the late 19th century, and a man who often gets credit for inventing flush toilets, Thomas Crapper. Yes, that was his real name. While he didn't invent the flushing toilet, Sir John Harrington had already done that ages ago, Mr. Crapper did improve it, and he played a huge part in its popularization. You know when you pull the lid off your toilet tank and see that floating rubber ball that regulates the amount of water in your tank? That's there because of Thomas Crapper. He's also the reason you can't smell anything you flush after you flush it. Thanks for that, Mr. Crapper. But even before Thomas Crapper advanced and mass-marketed popular toilet design, London already had flushing toilets. There were even a few public flushing toilets located in Hyde Park. As long as you had a penny, you could get a flush. You could also get a towel, a comb, and a shoeshine. But flushing toilets came with a hidden cost. They're not the only reason London found itself in a stinky situation in 1858, but they were definitely part of it. In 1858, London was the richest and most populated city in the world, and that population was growing exponentially. It had already doubled to two and a half million people by the 1850s. Today, there are around 8.8 million people living in London. That makes it a far cry from recapturing the title of most populated city in the world, which is currently held by Tokyo at a big chunk over 37 million people. But in 1858, two and a half million people were really stretching how much the city of London could handle. Poverty was growing, with, according to the Museum of London, one-third of Victorian Londoners living in some degree of poverty. And more people not only meant more flushes, but more pollution, as well as a greater strain on public services, particularly in regards to a fresh water supply. Millions of people were getting their water from the Thames. It's estimated that around half a billion liters of water a day was taken from the river by citizens and businesses for everything from washing, flushing toilets, to cooking and drinking. Ten years before the Great Stink, the Metropolitan Sewer Act of 1848 went into effect. Before this, there were around 200,000 cesspools in London, which caught waste runoff from homes and businesses. The refuse from these were emptied by night soil workers who would haul away the excrements in carts to sell as fertilizer. 
This was not an efficient system, as the waste from every cesspool wasn't collected, which meant the waste would just stagnate. The Metropolitan Sewer Act facilitated the movement of waste from individual cesspools by emptying it right into the Thames. By 1858, that had made for quite a huge mess. And it wasn't just human waste collecting and congealing in the river. It was everything. Runoff from leather factories, hospitals, butchers, prisons, livestock, soapworks, mills, and waste from two and a half million individuals and businesses all compacted into the river. There was garbage, literally tons and tons of fecal matter, dead animals, chemicals, everything that could make its way into the Thames made its way into the Thames. The word unsanitary doesn't do enough justice to how foul and dangerous this waste was to London's population. Every summer, Londoners would come down with what they called summer diarrhea, which, according again to the Museum of London, killed people every year, especially infants. It wasn't just summer diarrhea citizens needed to watch out for. Diseases that thrive in unsanitary conditions were common in the city. By the mid-19th century, tuberculosis, smallpox, cholera, and typhoid together had collectively killed so many people, especially children and infants who brought down the median age, that the average life expectancy in London dropped to 37 years. So why wasn't more being done at the time to keep these diseases at bay? At this point in history, sanitation and the way diseases were transmitted were not nearly as understood as they are now. Most people believed that diseases like cholera had nothing to do with contaminated water. They thought diseases were transmitted through miasma, or the foul smells carried through the foul air. So when the Great Stink occurred, many people believed they were getting sick not because of waterborne illness, but because they were breathing in diseases like cholera through their noses. Just four years before the Great Stink, in 1854, an English physician by the name of John Snow wasn't convinced by the miasma theory. He thought contaminated water might have something to do with the way cholera was spread. Cholera had been a problem in Britain since its first outbreak there in 1831. After another outbreak in 1848, Snow theorized in a published paper that cholera was transmitted via foul water rather than foul air. We know now he was correct. At the time, his theory was largely ignored. When cholera hit London again in 1854, Snow decided to put his theory to the test. He plotted where known cholera deaths had occurred onto a map and noticed a concentration in the Soho district of London. After talking to local residents, he was able to further pinpoint the source of the outbreak to a specific water pump on Broad Street. After removing the handle of the water pump, making it impossible for anyone to get their water there, the deaths stopped. It was later discovered that the water from the pump had been contaminated by a nearby cesspool, further proving Jon Snow correct on how cholera was transmitted. This was a huge discovery, 
but again, his theory was largely ignored until a few years later in the 1860s, when it wasn't. Though Parliament in 1858 could ignore the theory of Jon Snow, they could not ignore the stench coming from the Thames, four years after his experiment. Not only was it the hottest summer on record at the time, a lack of rainfall was causing the exposure of additional tons of refuse in the Thames. Still believing it was the foul odor causing contamination through the smell, the city began employing methods to reduce not the sewage, but the smell itself. This was done primarily through the use of chloride lime. According to the BBC, chloride of lime wasn't much more than a glorified air freshener, though its manufacturers made extravagant claims about its effects. An ad for chloride of lime preserved in the Museum of London claims it can prevent infection, purify air, help purify meat, help heal burns, and even destroy the venom of rabid animals. None of this was true, but Londoners were desperate to relieve themselves of the stinking stench. They soaked their curtains in lime. When that failed to help, 200 tons of it was dumped into the Thames, near the mouths of sewers. Chalk lime, chloride of lime, and carbolic acid were all used in an attempt to curtail the spreading diseases Londoners believed came from the Great Stink itself. Of course, pumping a bunch of lime into the river didn't work. Pressure began to mount through the press and public outcry that members of Parliament do something to alleviate the Thames of its horrendous stink was everywhere. For the press, the Great Stink always gave them something to write about during the summer of 1858. Everyone was talking about it. Satirical magazines even began publishing depictions of Old Father Thames. This was a representation of the river as an old man, covered in filth, and the cartoons sometimes included his children as diseased offspring. This wasn't the first year such depictions had been created. Decades before, in 1828, artist William Heath made a colored etching depicting a woman dropping her teacup to the ground in horror after seeing the monstrous contents of a magnified drop of water from the Thames. The piece was entitled, Monster Soup. Right next to this monster soup sat the Houses of Parliament. The smell was so problematic that it was suggested by MP John Brady that the government ask the Queen for permission to move the business of Westminster to a temporary location outside of London, like Oxford or St. Albans. This suggestion was not acted upon, but anyone working in government near the Thames could not deny the smell was growing worse. Finally, on June 30th, the stink became so foul that the MPs had to rush from the committee room, gagging and retching with handkerchiefs pressed to their noses. After that, they decided it was finally time to do something. The Thames winds its way through around 215 miles of England's countryside and passes through several cities, including London and Oxford, on its way. 
It's the longest river in England, and the second longest in the UK. The River Severn wins out by about five miles. The Thames has been a part of life in England for millennia. This is evident in the 250 skeletal remains of ancient prehistoric individuals discovered in London alone. It's not just bones hiding in the anaerobic black mud on the banks of this ancient river. For a few centuries now, mudlarks, or people who comb through the shore of the Thames looking for historic artifacts and long-forgotten treasures, have continued to find incredible objects from the past. According to the Museum of London, original mudlarks in the 18th and 19th centuries were impoverished Londoners looking for anything they could sell. Now, mudlarking is a hobby, and plenty of mudlarks have found everything from human bones to Bronze Age weapons to everyday objects that give us an intimate window into the lives of London's former inhabitants. You do need a permit from the Port of London Authority, though, before you go searching, and anything you find that may have archaeological significance must be reported to the Museum of London. The diversity in age and use of the artifacts, both new and ancient, that lie just inside the banks of the Thames are whispers of its long history. Neolithic populations knew this ancient river. Then Bronze Age beaker people, who showed up in England around 4,400 years ago, lived next to its waters. The Celts lived and died along the river. Julius Caesar crossed it in 54 BCE. Vikings sailed down its waters. And finally, the Palace of Westminster was built along its bank, which really came into handy when Victorians were filling it with factory runoff and refuse. Because during the Great Stink, according to Beverly Cook, curator for the Museum of London, the fact that Parliament was sitting during that hot summer was really the impetus for something to be done. But before anything could be done, first there had to be lots of arguing. Given how bad the Great Sink had become, the government officials were able to speed up their deliberations to a mere 18 days. According to the BBC, the bill was proposed by the then-Chancellor of the Exchequer, Benjamin Disraeli, who stated, quote, That noble river, so long the pride and joy of Englishmen, which has hitherto been associated with the noblest feats of our commerce and the most beautiful passages of our poetry, has really become a Stygian pool, reeking with ineffable and intolerable horrors. The public health is at stake. Almost all living things that existed in the waters of the Thames have disappeared or been destroyed. A very natural fear has arisen that living beings upon its banks may share the same fate. There is a pervading apprehension of pestilence in this great city." Unquote. Disraeli's bill became law on October 2nd, 1858, and according to the BBC, it gave the Metropolitan Board of Works the authority and funding to embark on that century's biggest civil engineering project. Engineer Joseph Bazalgette was in charge of the project. His solution was an advanced system of interconnecting sewers, which would capture the waste and runoff of London before it could reach the River Thames. His plan also included the creation of new embankments, which held sewers inside of them. This was a massive project, and one of the most important in London's history. 
Bazalgette brought London's infrastructure into a new age on a scale that London had never seen. Everything previously making its way into the Thames was piped out to various pumping stations, all which were elaborately designed with gorgeous colors and artistic ironwork which I wish we would bring back into our engineering projects today. From these stations, the sewage was redirected and still went into the river, just in less populated areas. So if you were poor or in a rural area where the pumps were sending everything, you had a much higher chance of being exposed to contaminated water. Building the sewers engineered by Basil Jet wasn't an overnight process. According to History UK, in all, 85 miles of interconnected sewers were built just along the Thames, with another 1,100 miles of sewers built throughout the main streets. Construction began in 1859, part of the system opened in 1865, and was finally completed in 1875. But it wasn't until 1887, 28 years later, that dumping untreated sewage into the Thames was discontinued. In the meantime, cholera was still a threat. In 1866, before the sewers were completed, there was another cholera outbreak in London. According to the BBC, this outbreak was centered in areas in the east of London that hadn't yet been connected to the new sewer system. This meant its residents were still drinking contaminated water from an older, more polluted reservoir. Since this outbreak was isolated to the east of London, it further proved Jon Snow's theories about the way cholera is spread through contaminated water. Snow's findings had been largely dismissed during earlier outbreaks, but in 1866, many of his peers who had doubted his findings, including those on the General Board of Health, finally accepted his conclusions on the spreading of the disease. This has greatly helped us diminish the number of cholera outbreaks and the way we understand, treat, and prevent this devastating disease today. Jon Snow and Joseph Bazalgette aren't necessarily recognizable names for many of us, but their contributions to our understanding of disease and the mitigation of contaminated water have had a huge impact on not just England's history, but the world's. Bazalgette's sewers still form the basis for London's sewer system today. The embankments he designed still contain sewers, and now, tube tunnels. Bazalgette's elaborately designed Victorian pumping stations and their engines fell into disuse during the 20th century. Through the work of engineers like Bazalgette, we've learned how to handle our waste in much more effective ways than we knew how to in the 19th century. However, despite our improvements and our best engineering efforts to keep our waterways free of untreated sewage, our waste still manages to find its way into our waterways. And it happens a lot. According to the Environmental Protection Agency, in the U.S. alone, between 23,000 and 75,000 SSOs, or sanitary sewer overflows, occur every year. Blockages, line breaks, an overload of stormwater and groundwater, power failures, improper sewer design, and vandalism all contribute to unsanitary leakages, which are happening all the time. And it isn't just human waste that causes contamination in these overflows. 
Chemicals, fertilizer, pesticides, garbage, everything we like keeping out of sight, all floods together, and sometimes we can't contain it. In the United States alone, around 860 billion gallons of sewage escapes our sewer systems each year. According to the BBC, England's Environmental Agency states that only 14% of rivers and lakes in the UK are considered to be in a good state of ecological status. So we've come a long way since 1858, but we still have quite a long way yet to go. Today our global population is nearing 8 billion people. The U.S. Census Bureau has a world population clock I'll put into the show notes where you can watch how quickly we're creeping up on that number. In 1858, when the Thames was overloaded by a quickly increasing population putting pressure into its waterways, there were less than 2 billion people in the entire world. It's more important than ever for us to find sustainable ways to exist in this beautiful, marvelous world that most of us would like to keep beautiful. Effective legislation, finding sustainable forms of energy, and cutting emissions can all help us mitigate our impact on the planet. And sustainability is a huge gift we can give to those who follow us, mudlarking for the things we left behind wanting to know who we were, what we felt, believed, and how our choices influenced the world they live in. Instead of bronze helmets, shields, and intricately painted bits of dishware, they'll find iPhones, use tennis shoes, pocket change, and Barbies. And through those items, they can help piece together our story. Let's make sure it has a happy ending. Thank you so much for listening to the show today and for sharing your time with me. I hope you enjoyed hearing all about the Great Stink of 1858. It wasn't the most charming of topics, but it's been on the list for a while. It needed to be flushed out. I waited all the way till the end to make a pun. It wasn't easy. Huge shout out to Froda for your incredibly generous Patreon subscription and for just being an awesome human in general. And by the way, go Bulldogs. I'll be back again in three weeks with more history for you. If you enjoyed listening to the show today, please consider rating and following on iTunes or wherever you listen. If you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram and hardly ever on Twitter. Background music is licensed through Envato Elements. Stay safe. Stay smart, stay curious, and until we meet again, my dear friends, go make some history.